0: Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SCP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey everybody! Welcome to the show. As always, I'm your host Zach Darnell. Today I am joined by Raman Ori. Raman, how are you?
1: I am good. Highly refreshed after a couple of weeks off for the holidays here. It was
0: nice. Uh, you know, honestly, I went a little stir crazy uh, the last the last few days. I think my wife and kids were excited to get back into our normal routine, well, whatever that looks like right now. So, Raman, what do you do with SCP?
1: Uh, So currently, I'm the president and CEO of SCP. Started there fresh out of school as a software engineer and then sort of did all the jobs from from there to here. Uh, One that was really relevant for our conversation today was uh, being heavily involved in recruiting and leading recruiting for a very long time.
0: It was interesting to hear your experience with Wes specifically and uh, with like the product and the problems that I know that you've since, uh, you know, over the last few years kind of stepped out of, of leading that effort. But I'm sure for many, many years, uh, we're able to provide a lot of good feedback for Wes as he was developing this this Woven product. I thought it was really interesting. One of the first things we talked about, we did do a little bit of level setting on what Woven is. I'll let Wes speak for himself uh, related to the company. One of the first things we talked about was the fact that we're still in the midst, even though it's January 2021, we're still in the midst of this pandemic. Just because we're in a new year, that hasn't changed. And the last nine months has been largely disruptive for a lot of different companies. And well, the people within those companies more specifically, and I thought it was interesting Wes's take on this, that, you know, they were a remote first company to begin with. So from an operational perspective, it didn't really change much for them, but from a people and, and trust perspective, like that was the big negative effect because they would, Kind of get together on a regular basis, and I loved his hiring strategy. What did you think about that part, especially as it relates to SCP?
1: There was some some good wisdom there, and I, I think a good reminder. No interesting topic is is one dimensional. Uh, all remote is great. All in person is great. Is is the only way, right? And so remote, you know, as as Wes talked about it, remote is not strictly only ever always remote. Right, they had other things built in, and then COVID has messed with that, and and there are consequences. And not taking different parts of your system for granted it was it was a key takeaway there.
0: I thought that part was really cool, and and you know, kind of ended that that little segment with this idea of hiring is really the first step to onboarding. Uh, I'd, I'd never really thought about it that way. That was a really interesting kind of takeaway from that conversation. And then we kind of transitioned into this, you know, something he's very passionate about with the way that he built and grew Woven's product with these no-code tools and these Wizard of Oz MVPs to kind of validate ideas as quickly as possible. And, you know, obviously the no-code movement has been talked about for a few years now, and I'm not an expert in the space. But the thing that I thought was interesting was that, uh, you know, he has a cost-benefit Relationship with no code, it was really, really hard for his teams to not want to build the full solution and then show it off. Uh, and you, you made a great point that that's still hard, even though you know it's the right decision. I don't why. Why do you think that's so hard for people?
1: I think there's a bunch of reasons, and they probably all live in the realm of psychology. You know, uh, most SaaS businesses are started by some technical people, and code is what we're good at. Right. So it's, it's natural to get in there and that, and the pride, you know, you build a no code thing. It may look okay, but you know how shaky it is. And that doesn't feel good. Nobody, nobody wants to build something that's not of the top level quality that they could. I thought, I thought he had some great insights there on things he might have done different in retrospect and how to do that effectively. And it led into that bigger topic. I'm going to steal you. I'm going to steal your spot for a minute. Do it. It led yeah. into The bigger topic of how they approach the startup. There's sort of the prototypical framework that you read about in a lean startup and now tons of books and media. And then there's the reality of how people actually dive into those. And one, we just talked about building too much code, but then the way they think about hiring and growing and customer interviews. And um, I, I thought there were a lot of interesting insights there from him about ways that they were very disciplined and how not easy that was.
0: No, that's a really good point. He kind of went against his, you know, how he defined the quote unquote standard model, uh, in in a lot of different ways, it wasn't just the the no code movement. It was really the philosophy with how he built Woven and grew it. That's a really really good point. So I guess we will let Wes speak for himself. Let's get into the show. Welcome to Behind the Product. We are joined by Wes Winham of Woven. Wes, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. I just got off of 15 days of doing nothing work related, so I'm uh, I'm pretty excited to be back.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So, did you get a little stir crazy over those 15 days
2: or were you were you like relaxed? So, I got some reading in. I got a new baby. She's 4 months old and I got to see my parents and my wife's parents. So, I was I was pretty relaxed. I ate way too much food. It was it was pretty great. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on the new baby. Is that your first? It's my first. I, I tell people I have the, the best baby. I got super lucky. She sleeps. She's happy. Uh, I, I hear that sometimes the second one is different. So I'm, I'm just going to appreciate this one while I got it.
0: I'm sure it's different for everybody, but that was my journey. I, I have two boys, a little bit older, but yeah, our second one, very different baby than our first. So hopefully you could just get two sleepy, happy babies. That's the dream. <laughs> uh, and Raman, thank you for joining us for being our guest host today. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. And by the way, it can confirm I have three sons, all radically different, almost nothing alike, the three of them, other than loving Legos. I will have no expectations.
0: (laughs) All right. So Wes, just a little context setting. Tell us a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about Woven.
2: I'm Wes. I'm originally from Oklahoma. I'm a software engineer. I, I fell in love with startups in college, founded one. That one totally failed. Uh, but got me involved in another startup I did for ten years, and then founded Woven about three years ago. Woven is a technical assessment platform, as I think what I'm I'm supposed to say. But we do, do things a little bit differently. Uh, I think most technical assessments suck. I think balancing a binary tree is a ridiculous way to evaluate a senior engineer. I think engineering is more about problem solving uh working with minimal context. So our assessments are like real work. They're real work scored by real engineers so that you can find better engineers that are a better fit and do that with less engineering time.
0: Oh man, I, I, I don't think I could agree uh more as far as a lot of the conventional ways that people assess engineers uh aren't great. Uh so I I love hearing that and we're actually a, a customer of of Woven. At SCP, and I know Remin is a is a big supporter. Remin, what was your early
1: experience with Roman or with uh, Woven like? Well, where where do we begin? <laughs> I won't spend too much time on it, but uh, I had met Wes a very long time ago. Ironically, uh, tried to hire him, interviewing him out of college. Uh, I don't think we got to the technical assessment, or I maybe mean, no, we did, we did. Uh, but I don't think I was there for that part. So I, I don't know if you have any horrible memories from that. It is my fault. But uh, anyway, we'll move on. I've been not very interested in trying any services or products related to recruiting things because I had such disdain for how the industry at large sort of approaches this stuff. And uh, Wes wanted to talk, which was pre-product even. I think you, you were doing deep research on like what, what are real problems that people doing this are having. Even from there, I thought, like, okay, this is the one time that I would actually consider it because I don't know Wes well, but I knew what caliber uh, of engineer you were coming out of school. And I knew sort of the, the circles you played in. And I knew that you had tried to build up engine, not say try, but you would succeeded in, in building up engineering teams. And, and a little bit of failure too. Makes yeah, le- Learning all the hard lessons we learn. like, okay, this is the one shot I'm going to give to a service outside because the situation isn't going to be any better than this. And I also knew Wes's co founders uh, reasonably well, too. Early days with Woven were awesome, still awesome. Uh, although I'm not directly involved, uh, everything I hear is good, both from our candidates and from our folks. They've come to rely on the report. So to tee it up, and, and Wes, correct me, we will interview a candidate. And if we think, Just some, you know, initial screening. And if we think they look interesting, then we'll route them to Woven. And Woven will give them a tailored assessment that's sort of been trained on how we, the characteristics we look for. We get back a report that provides some very specific feedback. Did this well? Didn't do this as well as other candidates and a score. And our folks have come to depend on that. Uh, The interviewers going into the final interview are like, where's the assessment? I need to see that. Or I saw this in their assessment. I want to dive into that when we have them in for the full interview, which I think is a pretty
2: strong, positive signal. I think the, the fact that you dive in on things you learned in the assessment, I think that's, that's what the best interviews do. They, they're not memoryless. They, they, they're Bayesian. They update based on what I heard a little bit. I want to learn a little bit more about this. That, that makes them smarter. Like I think there's this idea that we need to be completely memoryless and unbiased, but it, it makes decision making worse. I think there are ways to fight bias, but forgetting things is maybe not uh, the best one usually.
0: Well, being uh, being somebody that has a terrible memory, uh, I love that concept. I, I need as much support as possible. So today is is we're recording this. It's January fifth, twenty twenty one. We've obviously been uh, in the midst of this pandemic for the last nine months. I'm kind of curious about Woven's experience, your experience, kind of leading a a startup through this period of time. How have you guys adjusted? How have you and your teams adjusted to not being physically together? Has that that been disruptive for you guys the last few months?
2: We're kind of like an A-B test in this thing because we were uh, were distributed from the start, founded the company, we're going to be remote first. But we relied a lot on getting together periodically to build trust and do some community building things. So our operations, not affected at all. Even though I believed that in-person part was important, I think I underestimated how important it is. I've seen interpersonal situations where just a little bit more trust would have saved so much you know, gnashing of teeth and questioning and motive doubting that didn't happen in our first 18 months when we got together a lot. And then this hits, we stopped doing those rituals. It's just harder to remember that we're people that are trying our best and are flawed and I think getting together in person is just so currently irreplaceable for that. You know, we just bought an Oculus Quest two for a bunch of our folks, so we're going to try some VR stuff to replace it. But you know, I don't I don't think it's going to be quite there yet. So I think that trust is really what eroded, combined with the general like everybody's got more stress. We all got our cortisol levels way up to here. You know we're not in our social connection, so I think just generally we're all a little bit less resilient to stress, so I think we're a little bit more emotionally reactive, a little bit less trusting, and man that sucks. I don't know a way around it, you know we're doing as many uh remote zoom happy hours as we can get away with, uh and I don't know I don't know if they're really moving the needle uh but that that trust and connection it's it's less.
0: It's interesting to hear. You know, the conversation has been, you know, remote work forever, and this will forever change the way that we work. And you know, all these different sound bites. Do you think that recognizing the importance of not necessarily being in the office together every day, but having those those regular rituals? Do you think that'll will you increase or change the way that uh, maybe woven is structured physically when quote unquote we can be back in the office together?
2: So, from the beginning, I mean, if you read like automatic, like the OG remote distributed team with hundreds of engineers, they got together for weeks. You know, they had this like cascading series of get together. So, they were like about it from the beginning. I think that gets lost sometimes in the messaging. So, we actually, at least up until now, we'll see if it changes. I've only hired people that have a direct flight to Indianapolis. So, there are 80 million. Americans, uh, and some, you know, Canadians in there that live in metros that have a direct flight to Indianapolis. So we can get together pretty easily. And that's been part of the strategy. And it was, you know, we're going to get together a recorder. It's a direct flight. It's not a big deal. And then COVID kind of blew all that up. I think having those rituals is so important.
0: I've never heard that hiring strategy before. That is awesome. I'm just kind of curious, was it just like uh, that happened organically or, or did you make a deliberate decision to start with?
2: Like, nope, we're going to look for direct flights to Indy. I was in an airport on a connecting flight that got delayed. And that was when I was just like, oh my gosh, flying's not bad, but connecting flights are the worst. I'm from Oklahoma to Indianapolis. There is no direct flight. It is the worst. Sometimes I fly to Denver and it's like, oh, that was no problem. I'm already here. One of the learnings from happiness research is that people way underestimate how much commutes harm them, like chronic stress. It's like if they do these studies where you text someone randomly throughout the day and you say like, what are you doing? How happy you are. Consistently commuting is the lowest in people's day. And people will accept jobs that are 45 minutes away, an hour away, even though this thing, it makes them measurably less happy and they leave those jobs sooner. So I think as humans, we're pretty bad at estimating how much that kind of chronic annoyance impacts us. So I think direct flights are just one way of taking a small step towards like, okay, I think that actually matters more than you might think it does. So let's uh, let's build that into our strategy for now.
0: Oh, that's so cool. Moving from like Woven's people to maybe Woven's product or business, do you think that uh, some of these circumstances has changed your maybe growth projections, either positively or negatively?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, so we had... Two months in a row where we had zero new customers, and for a startup where growth is everything, that was pretty scary. March and April were everyone was holding their breath on hiring, so that was pretty scary. What's going to happen? Is this going to come back? Uh, it it did. Um, you know, we're back to our back on our growth trend, um, but we did li- lose a couple of months. What's been interesting for us is. If you'd have talked to me in twenty seventeen, like when I was going out and interviewing Roman with a you know tape recorder on a table in Starbucks and just trying to learn as much as I can, I really wanted to build a thing for remote hiring, but it just wasn't there. There were like maybe two hundred companies that had at least ten engineers that were distributed. It was just really weird in twenty seventeen. And one of the things about hiring is I think there's like there's two paths. There is I don't have anybody applying at all. I'm in a small city. I have an unattractive, you know, I'm not good at marketing what I do, or you know, maybe it's actually not exciting. I can't pay market rates. In that case, you just got to get some bodies. Like you're not trying to hire major league players. You you can hire out of the minor leagues. You just got to find them. Um, So that's one problem. The other problem is like, oh man, I got a lot of people, but they they all look the same. They're all resumes. I can talk to them, and they're good at talking. But we all know being good at talking is. Only loosely correlated with being a really productive engineer, and I, I do. I have worked with 10x engineers, so I know they exist. So how do you find them? Two different problems. If you are remote, you don't have the first problem. That does not exist for remote companies. Every remote company gets the you know the same applications that you would get if you're like Google uh, relative to your size. You just get so many great candidates. If everyone was remote, I would remove this first problem. And then that second problem is about selection and finding the right people, which is what I was super jazzed about. I'm not a sorcerer; I'm not going to go knock on LinkedIn uh, doors. So remote eliminates that first problem. Now everyone has a selection problem. And man, COVID accelerated remote so much. I've seen statistics like 60% of engineering teams that previously did some work from home are now going to open up to hiring at least outside of their cities, if not full remote. I think it's it's just accelerating the trend. I think a lot of companies that were previously heavily leaning co-located are now, you know, hybrid's not so bad. You know, I could probably hire someone from that, you know, we're in Indianapolis, Cincinnati's two hours away. Maybe I could hire someone from Cincinnati and they can come in once a week and drive. Like people are are thinking about that now, which has kind of changed what we're able to do. So we're able to go all in on remote companies. What's the best thing for remote companies versus you know, maybe that would have been three years down the road. So it's, it's pretty exciting for me.
1: Do you find that for a company that went from strictly local to now incorporating remote, they may find themselves in a position where like, I don't know how to do this well. You know, I, I, I knew what to do if I could get them to come in the office and meet these four people. But, like, does this open more doors, give
2: you more, almost more credibility? I and mean, it's not exactly the right word. I, I think, I think so. I, I think right now there's this transition period where, you know, everyone's remote. We have a lot of uh, grace for everyone because, okay, you have to be remote. You're not necessarily good at this. But there's going to be this transition period where. If you're remote, you are being compared to other companies who are remote first and have learned some lessons. Although you know we're all learning lessons right now, so I think coming in with some credibility, like here's the job boards to use, here's some onboarding templates, here's some rituals that kind of work, here's a way to think about getting together. I think that does bring um, some credibility, and uh, we should write more. That's one of my 2021 uh, resolutions: is to get more writing out there of stuff that I, you know, have great conversations and learn a lot from people who are really good at this. And then I just like sit on this. So Roman, if you don't see me writing more blog posts in 2021, you should send me an email. Gotcha. Will do.
0: So I'm actually kind of curious, you know, SCP has been around for coming up on 33 years and we've been in the office together for that length of time, you know, this is the first, this was the first time that we had ever had to disperse and kind of go fully remote. And, uh, as, as Wes, as you were talking about some of the things that you experienced with your teams early on, I didn't see a lot of that at first, but we've also hired some new people through this period that have never been with us in the office. And I can see how, Drastic change and kind of your cultural shift, at least for us, could dramatically impact the way that people interact with each other and this trust building and just kind of getting to know each other. And there really is no replacement for it. And it impacts everything from the way that you hire to the way that you build teams to the way that you groom the next generation to, you know, any, any number of things. Do you think that these shifts in the way that a lot of companies, like you said upwards of sixty percent could be remote forever will influence some of woven's product roadmaps or the things that you'll start to add
2: into the suite of offerings that you guys have I hope so that's that's the vision is you know hiring is the first start of having a great productive engineer that's integrating in your team like that's the first step. It's not the last step. I was an engineering manager. I didn't have time to have a super cohesive hiring to onboarding flow, but like hiring is the first step to onboarding, right? So like, it's crazy that we throw away all this stuff and then we stop, or at least I did throw away this stuff and then stop onboarding. Like why can't part of hiring be your learning some of the things you need for onboarding? Why can't some of the onboarding training be pulled before hiring? Like there's just so much opportunity there where like an engineer designing a process would not design it this way. we've got, you know, we got recruiting, we've got not enough time. This is all our second job. I think there's a lot of opportunity to add some engineering to this really important people process.
1: That's very good advice (laughs) and very good point. I I don't know if you want to go here without sort of giving away the product roadmap. Is that sort of the arc that you see woven going towards? You started with being very good at assessment. And I know you've explored sort of matchmaking because these people come into your system. And you learn some things about them and then companies come into your system and you learn some things about them and you have some opportunity there, but then also sort of the long life cycle of a single person into a company and becoming
2: fully integrated, invested and productive. Is that part of where Woven is going? You know, I'm a product person, so I get too big for my britches sometimes. I'm I'm curious, so we can do a, a little bit of mini customer discovery when you have leveling discussions, like does this come in, person come in as an SE2 or you know, when do they get promoted? Is that all based on kind of peer reports? Do you have any data you bring to that system? There's
1: data. It's not very good data. The silliest, stupidest proxy that we all use is years experience. And, and it's a crappy, crappy proxy. And it's not that it has no value, but it, it certainly doesn't tell the whole story. That is the most common piece. But beyond that, we're we're looking for demonstrated capability in a number of areas. So we think to be good at this job, this level, this role, you need to be good at these things. And we know it's a completely flawed system, but it's something. It's a scaffolding to start with. So can we get those folks those experiences? And then can they take advantage of those? And when it's sort of obvious, like, yes, they can, they can show that they can do all those things. They'll be good at this. Great. Then let's make them that. That's kind of how that goes for us.
2: That's what I hear. Uh, I think you're doing it well and that you have a matrix, you have definitions. I think a lot of other companies are like just the years of experience, which does have some predictive power, but we all know that's a bell curve and it's the best we got. A thing that we're exploring is how might how might we aid leveling as part of hiring and promotion? How can we bring some data? You know, Imagine a world where you have a matrix of things that the capabilities that you need an engineer, and then you've got a mix of stories of them doing this. And then a little bit of assessment where you can see like how well do they do this in a standardized way it's it's data it's not the decision but some way to bring some data to what's a really important fuzzy conversation i think especially i hear stories of folks that they don't actually level people until they're 6 months into the job and sometimes that makes it really hard to compete for that what it would be a staff or principal engineer do they want to take that risk on that place so don't quote me on this but that's where we're getting some energy on very assessment related problem that is on that life cycle of you know, having a great team member that's growing and getting better.
1: We could do a whole podcast or five on just that topic. So if you ever want to talk more, I think I have been personally involved in, in at least a, a significant majority of the mistakes you can make in
2: doing this. I will take you up on that.
0: I will uh, look forward to hearing some of that conversation because I'd love to learn more about this. Um, I've, learned, I've learned a lot in my last couple of years here at SCP in the way that we do this. So. I want to dive into, uh, Wes, another, another subject that you are seemingly particularly uh, passionate about. This idea of kind of Wizard of Oz MVPs and no code quickly validating ideas, right? I think it's safe to say that uh, we all know that it is a good product development practice to validate ideas or invalidate them as quickly as possible with the lowest amount of spend, right? I I don't think there's much argument to that. I don't know a ton about no code. Uh, You know, a quick Google search told me a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the no code movement uh, from your perspective.
2: I can kind of tell you what I, th- what I think it is uh, and then how it's kind of affected what, how we've done our business. So no code, it's like serverless. Yeah, there's a server somewhere. No code, there's code somewhere. But it's the <laughs> label that means building stuff really fast without writing a lot of code, often in a visual manner, often in a way that a non-technical or, uh, you know, they're technical. They can, they can do technical things. Using a fork is technical. It's a gradient, right? They're less technical. They're not engineers. They can adapt systems and sometimes even build them. And you can go so, so fast uh, compared to even a like, great engineer in their favorite stack. It's crazy how fast you can iterate. So that's the tool, faster iteration, faster time to value. And what's this enabled for us? So backing up a little bit, I was head of engineering at a startup, did a bunch of hiring, Thought I was awesome at it. Had my first failure. Oh, not awesome. And so for me, I had a small team. One person that is a lot slower really made a difference. There are some places where like, you you want someone that's a good teammate. And if they're a good teammate, that's okay. There are some places where if you're three times slower than the average engineer, let alone 10 times slower than the a really, really top 10% engineer at the same level of quality, it's just really tough uh, to have that seat be taken up. So I hired a great person that was in a seat like that. It sucked. Big hole in my roadmap. I had I had to let him go because of the type of uh, team I needed, and I didn't ever want to do it again. So talked to a bunch of grizzled engineering managers of what actually works. Read the IO psych literature. What does science say predicts hiring? Uh, The Venn diagram overlap is if you're gonna if you're gonna hire dancers, you should watch them dance. So like, duh. Okay, yeah, doing some engineering predicts engineering. Cool. I think I should have known. Uh, So I started doing more of that. And the closer it looks like the engineering they're doing, the more predictive it is. So for me, that was like a project where you like do some work in a web framework with like kind of vague instructions, which is like what engineering is. So fix my mishiring problem. So then I'm going to tell you this. This is the story of the startup that's true, not the one that is cleaned up and, you know, true. So I was like work simulations, take home tests. This is the way to stop mishiring because mishiring sucks. And so sold, sold my startup, start this new thing. And then I spent six months doing customer discovery because I was going to solve mishiring. And we went and we built work simulations, like take-home tests and tested things. And if I would have done it the way that 20-year-old me would have just built first, I would have built the best thing to stop mishiring in the world. Nobody cares about mishiring. Nobody. I would have built something for absolutely nobody. Nobody wants to spend four hours. People care about saving engineering time, increasing quality, but nobody has a mishiring problem. But we built a a no-code solution. So instead of going and building something in Rails for a year to build this great product to stop mishiring, we built something really quickly in Google Sheets, which is the best no-code solution, Google Docs, Airtable, which is uh, I think they're officially part of the no-code movement. So Airtable is a it's like MS Access back in the day, but in the cloud and very, very good. So it's a database that you can edit as just you know someone who could use Google Sheets. So we actually hooked that into our application. We were using Zapier everywhere. So things that would take a couple days to build and build well, I could do in 15 minutes in Zapier, 10 great systems. And we use that to build a system that we ultimately threw most of it away. And if we hadn't had no code, uh, we would have been six to nine months behind. And we might even have died because we might have just clutched onto all this great code we wrote. A uh, thing about no code, you get there faster and you know it's a little easier to throw away that zap that you wrote than that like class that's really well tested and like, oh man, I, I built this monitoring for it. So uh, I, I think our startup might not exist if we didn't have um, this kind of no code instinct and no code tools.
1: I think it's a very common wisdom in the startup world, well, e- even any product development world, right? Let's not build too much. Let's spend more time talking to customers. Let's, let's really make sure we understand the problem. And so few people seem to be able to do it. Even people who aren't especially technical will feel like, I have to have this working, strong piece of code, let alone, I, th- I think your founding team is all very strong engineers. How did you have the willpower to not go build when it seems like everybody falls in this trap?
2: It was so hard. We were the perfect team to be aligned philosophically. We were all engineers who had built shit that nobody used. Like that's the main thing. You you do that a couple times and you start to be like, yeah, maybe I don't want to do that again. I don't want to pour my soul into this thing that doesn't get used. So we'd all had that experience. We're like, we're not going to do that. We were like lean startup folks we had a group called desperately seeking validation where we just did like quick validation like we were primed for this and it was still so so hard because you have this pride as an engineer we shipped pdfs for the first 13 months of our company that was our product shipping pdfs and that hurt so much we were taking screenshots of stuff and turning them into pdfs for so long and every time we did it it just like hurts your soul And the thing nobody, so no, I love no code. I'm going to talk a little bit about what's bad about it and the, the reason I think people fall out of it. These systems, they're brittle. You have to use real engineering. And it's harder to go from like prototype to like well engineered thing. There's this big gray area where like you just, you're under a lot of pain as an engineer. And for my co founders who, They were along this decision with me to do to build it this way, but they had to take the brunt. Like I was out trying to learn how to sell, talking to customers and prospects. They were in there dealing with these brittle systems that they didn't feel good about. And I think it it takes a morale tool to be an engineer and know that you could build this thing, and you have this itch, right? Like that's what makes us good engineers is you have that itch to like. I'm lazy. I know I could like. Uh, There's that XKCD. You know, pass me the salt. What's taking so long? I'm building a system to pass you arbitrary condiments. That's the engineering thing, right? And to go against that instinct and build this like kind of crummy thing that you're showing to customers, it just feels really bad. So there are months where we just had to have hard conversations where we knew we all felt it's time to build, but we just had to have that discipline of like, yeah, but is this the thing that's going to kill our business because we can't build this? And we kept having to say, no, it's not the thing that'll kill our business if we don't build this. It's this other thing. So let's go test faster. It's so hard, Roman.
1: The empathy part of me wants to go back in time and being on the receiving end of those PDFs and screenshots as we were executing our interview process. Like It didn't even cross my mind that this wasn't... I mean, I knew it wasn't really automated in in any significant way, but I could have cared less. All I cared about was, well, tell me about this candidate. I need to know whether I should take the next step with them or not. That's it. That's all I cared about and the value I was getting out of it. Like, I I wish I could go back in time (laughs) and tell your team like, no, 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 you're making my day every
2: day. You're making my day. This is making my world better. This is probably what they needed to hear. I was kind of the product manager for part of it. And that was, I think when I was doing well, I would seek out those sort of stories and say like, no guys, I know it feels bad, but like, look at this candidate that got hired. I think that's what good product management and engineering leadership do but yeah it was it was hard to look at those pdfs every day so a minute
0: ago you mentioned that there there's some kind of some maybe some downsides outside of maybe some morale and and uh maybe some emotional response to to using no code uh, are there other kind of negatives to taking that approach like would you do something if you had could go back would you do something
2: differently you know there's the reflexive no I wouldn't do anything differently cuz i like where i am but i think getting earlier uh, standardization around how you're going to use no code and where you're going to use it and where you're not. And what's the point where you promote something to production. I think we could have spent a half day workshop aligning on like our rules of engagement for when we're going to do this and not that would have saved a lot of kind of painful discussions about like, is this the time? It feels like it should be. And then also uh, for zaps, for instance, we learned that zaps by default fail silently and That sucks. Whenever your product just fails silently and your customer is like, hey, where's that thing that I've been waiting on that is very important to my business? And you're like, I don't know. It failed silently four days ago and we didn't know about it. There's just like this kind of hygiene around your no-code tools. I think uh, there might be this perception that like, I'll just use no-code and everything will work. And I think we could have applied an engineering mindset earlier and built less brittle no-code systems. We've since evolved some of those practices, like we always add logging uh, for a Zapier alerts and failure to Slack and some things like that, that we just didn't have earlier. And I think that would have um, smoothed out some of the rough points.
0: That's a good point. I, I mean, I would imagine that, that no matter what tool set, I don't know if that's a, a good way to describe that, You know, some of those lessons you would learn along the way. I feel like you know, that's, a, that's a not terribly uncommon story. Just before we actually kind of started recording, we talked about your opinion or, or journey through building your building this company in kind of the non-standard way or, or going against the quote-unquote standard model. I'd love to dive into that. I think, I think it's maybe a good time to ask this question. What do you view the standard model to be and why do you think you deviated from that or how did you deviate from that?
2: So the, the standard model, as I would describe it, for a venture-backed company that you know has a crazy dream, wants to change the world, is you go work at Stripe, some great engineering organization that has a big name and a good reputation. Uh, then you take a couple of your friends from that company. You find a problem that you encountered. And this is like a SaaS story. That's the world I know, best software as a service. And then you go spend a year building something. There's a lot of talk about lean startup. I see, I don't see a lot of it. I still see so many startups. It's like, we're launching at 18 months. That's still the norm. They go build and then they sign up 10 of their friends that work at other big name companies so they can put those logos on your deck. They don't charge them anything. All that's all they really need is the logo. And then they go pitch a bunch of seed investors and they say, look at these three names from Stripe. You know, I'm not picking on Stripe, actually. I love Stripe. And look at these logos on these pilots we have Do you want in? Because the next guy is going to write us a check if you don't. That's the standard model. And it works, clearly. I think it works for getting investment. The challenge is, you know, it's so easy to build the wrong thing for a year. If we would have followed that model, we absolutely would have built the wrong thing. Maybe we could have raised enough money to pivot. Maybe we could have gotten through that hard time. But instead, we went out. I had 30 customer discovery conversations. I recorded them. I used those to convince my co-founder that I was not crazy, that hey, this is a real thing. Went out and pre-sold a deal uh, with a contract. I said, if I build this, will you buy it? Please sign here on like a emailed a friend of basically. It was actually a contract. It was like a real contract. Oh wow. Awesome. I just emailed someone, I was like, Hey, do you have a contract that I could use from another CEO? And he was like, Yeah, try this one. I was like, uh, cop, find a replace. That this is good enough. And use that uh, to say, Hey, this is real. It wasn't, we're going to raise money right now. It's like, we're going to go spend a year together figuring this out. And then we're going to go out and raise money. And we charged from day one. I remember the first time I asked for money, it was someone I had met at a meetup that was hiring their first engineer. And I asked for $3,500. And I was just terrified. That felt like so much money. And he was like, oh, wow, that's all? okay. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, oh, oh, okay, I guess. And now, you know, we charge. Ten times that, and people don't bat an eye. But we charged from the beginning because I needed that. I needed to know that what we're doing is valuable, and I needed to justify to myself that it was worth it. Pushed us to do more in the product. You know, we were we were signing annual contracts from the beginning, uh, which learning how to do sales from the beginning, iterating with real customers who are paying us from the beginning, and trying to drive revenue up so that we knew we knew we had a real business, not just a Bunch of logos for people who are willing to entertain us. Although there's definitely a lot of that. Folks like Roman that were willing to take a take a chance on us. Like we didn't know what we we're doing clearly, but uh, we were very excited about it, and we we're going to work hard. Um, and I think willingness to for folks like that to take a chance on us is the only way that works. But we actually charged and, and gained revenue and built the business that way. You know, how did that change? Uh, maybe the conversations with initial investors. There's this really weird thing with just human psychology, that we value potential much more than realized potential. So this happens in uh, draft picks in the NBA and the NFL, where draft picks are worth more than an above average second year player, which doesn't make any sense. Like You think you're going to do better than average for picking randomly. And the same thing's true with startups. So if you have a little bit of revenue, there are some investors that will discount you relative to that other company who has no revenue and the potential. Like I know why those Stripe guys raged with a slideshow. Because if you have zero revenue and infinite potential, the conversation's different. It's about the idea. It's about the potential. And that, there's a lot of advantage to that. That's what you want to be talking about. So my job was to, I had to convince myself it was real with the revenue. And then I had to almost discount the revenue and the trend line that I was so proud of and talk about the idea. Like that's the thing, uh, you know, the vision. So it's, it's a weird, it's a weird little dance between what really builds a business and what you need to do to convince folks of the future potential, which, you know, I wasn't like lying. I believe in this potential, but I had to very much change the frame of the conversation.
0: Oh, wow. That's so, int- that's yeah. Cause you're, you're right that those pre-revenue conversations are, I'm selling the world. I'm, I am going to change the world versus here's a little bit of reality that validates that this is a real thing. I know it's going to be more than this but don't focus so much on it. That's, that's, that's
2: really interesting. Yeah, it's like you set an anchor. Uh, you, you anchored them closer to zero than infinity at that point.
1: So Wes, I don't know if you remember this. You and I met at an awesome Jamaican restaurant near SCP one day, well well after you had woven up up and off the ground. And you shared some stuff about things you were doing. And I think at the time I was evaluating a different startup for various reasons. That's not my world. I I work in more um, professional services arena, right? So I was just trying to pick your brain about some things. And one of the things you said in that meeting, sticking on this, doing things a different way, just blew my mind and stuck with me ever since. And now you you might tell me I'm remembering wrong, but you talked about almost having a a mental model for what investors expected in terms of revenue growth and opportunity growth, uh, whether you express it as ARR or some other method. And almost knowing that at this milestone, they, the investors, um, either my current or potential investors will expect to see a certain inflection here and here and here, and it needs to look like this. And so from that, I can reverse engineer back that now I need to hire more marketing or I need to hire more customer success. And I, I had never had anybody approach it that way. It's always I've always seen it from the other side. The oh crap, you know, we we can't answer the phone fast enough. I got to hire more salespeople. So, can you talk more about that? Like, how did you arrive at that idea? Um, how well has that worked?
2: I think uh, you know, I, I definitely stole this idea. I think uh, Exact Target uh, here in Indianapolis. That's how they built their business. Is they got in a spreadsheet and they're like, we need to get to this number. What do we need to do six months before that number to make it possible? What do we need to do 12 months before that? All right, let's, let's in- induction this. Uh, so if you're on the venture capital game, there are expectations. You are, it's a beauty contest, right? It's, it's Are you the better investment relative to other investment? There is no absolute best investment. There's only better than other options for this investor. You know, There's a lot of psychology too, like who do they like hanging out with and what gives them status. And what that's, you, know, you can't tr- control that as much. So that changes you know that changes with the macro economy the changes with your ARR so just knowing those benchmarks is really helpful there's a, a survey called it used to be called Pacific Crest SaAS benchmark I think it got I think it's got a different name but you can actually go and look up for private companies at this scale what is top quartile revenue growth what's the median what is net dollar retention which is like I have a dollar worth of customers I look at those same customers a year later are they worth a dollar twenty are they worth 80 cents so you can get some of those core metrics. And then you can work backwards. It's like, okay, here's our target. Uh, here's where we need to be in 12 months. I know that I need to hire a sales uh, sales development rep to do cold calling or whatever, a marketer to learn how to create an ad campaign. And I know that it takes three months to ramp them up to productivity. And then there's another three month ramp. So if I want to hit this input and I have a two-month sales cycle. So if I get a lead, it takes me two months. So you can just kind of do the math working backwards. And you can say, I need to spend if I don't spend money now, I'm going to miss my number in nine months. And we're going to drop down a rung in quality of companies relative to other investments. And we're not going to get that venture capital money. It's going to go somewhere else. And we're not going to get to make uh, the impact on the world that that kind of money makes possible. So it's a spreadsheet. The spreadsheet is always wrong. Uh, you know, you're always making ridiculous assumptions. And sometimes you're optimistic. Sometimes you're just clueless. But if you don't make that, you are pretty much guaranteed to be wrong. Uh, It makes you a little bit less wrong.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And leading a completely different kind of business, even a system, even a model that is frequently wrong, is sort of a refreshing alternative to, well, I'm going to trust my intuition or I'm going to do what I did last time when I think about growing this team or expanding or adding this capability. You know, any business leader stands up and says it confidently in the in the email or the all hands meeting, but the reality is you don't know. You don't know for sure it's the right time. You don't know if you're early or late, or if this is the right person. And it, like I said, that that story really struck with me. Stuck with me. It's just sort of an alternative way to think about those key milestone moments, when to
2: make different kinds of
1: investments.
2: And you still have to stand up, and you still have to. It's like you're. It's like you're. You know, kind of schizophrenic. You've got this it has to be very critical engineering mindset. Is this going to work? Let's stress test it. And you have to have this other mindset, which is like, I believe in this thing if everyone else, if we are all critical of it, it will not happen. Like we need this positive belief to go out and take the risks and make it happen. Otherwise it's going to be a self-fulfilling negative prophecy. So I think it's, it's just tough wearing those two hats and so let's go build the spreadsheet where I learn that, oh, I, I don't think my SDRs can work 120 hours a week. Probably that assumption is wrong. Probably need to change something here and then go and, you know, put on the hat of like, you know, this is why we're doing this. We're going to hit this number. Uh, we're going to go make it happen, like create this reality. It's tough to bounce back and forth with those hats.
0: Oh, man, I bet. And such good wisdom from two awesome leaders. Wes, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you.
2: Great to be here. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Roman.
0: I'm Zach Darnell, and this is Behind the Product, an original podcast by SCP. You can find more about us at scpcom slash podcast and subscribe wherever you get your shows. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.